Welcome to Talking Wisely, a podcast about the insure tech space. I'm Connor Atchison, founder and CEO of WiseOx. On this podcast, we invite thought leaders to discuss the intersection of insurance, healthcare, and technology. Learn how WiseDocs can help you innovate and the changes happening in our industry. This episode of Talking Wisely, it's Connor Atchison, CEO and founder, and uh, I'm going to turn it over to Joe, the principal of Health Strategy Associates and the president at Comp Pharma. Joe, could you uh, tell us a little bit about your background and uh, some of your experiences? We'd love to dive into that. Sure. So uh, appreciate the opportunity to get on the pod with you, Connor. I've been doing a couple of these lately, and they're certainly a lot of fun and hopefully productive too. So I've been in the business since mm, ballpark 87. Actually, I was having a conversation with somebody. They asked how long I've been in the business. I said, oh my gosh, that's been a long time. Uh, Where we built the first workers' comp network in D.C., Baltimore, and outside of Boston as well. Uh, Since then, done a lot of consulting in a bunch of different areas. Uh, My main focus the last probably 15 years has been the workers' comp medical management space. I also do work in Medicaid, Medicare duels, programs like that. Uh, and as you mentioned, I'm also president of Comp Pharma, which is a little company that focuses pretty narrowly on workers' compensation pharmacy issues. So we help payers figure out how to maximize the use of their benefits in, in the workers' comp side and, and uh, address issues such as opioids and whatnot. Work with a team on that, but other than that, I'm pretty much a solo operator. Excellent. So I, I see uh, that you also have your own managed care matters, uh, your blog. What got, got you uh, generating that? Well, what got me doing that was Julie Ferguson. Julie's uh, handled a lot of the sort of technical stuff for me over the last 25, 30 years. And she kept telling me like 20 years ago, I need to start a blog. And my response was, nobody cares what I had for lunch. And she finally talked me into it. And long story short, I realized it wasn't about what I had for lunch. And uh I was pretty early into the blog space, um, been doing it for about 18 years now. It's It's been a lot of fun. It's been pretty productive. Got myself in trouble a few times, which is always good. Uh, you gotta got to stay on your toes. And it's sort of become really workers' comp medical management focused. I do get into some national national health issues and things that, that impact that as well. So the, I know that the space is vastly changing, you know, with COVID, with technology, some of the new regulations. What have you seen in the last few years that uh, has been some great change and transformation? And where do you see some limits uh, in the space still to the, today? So great question. Um, and they sort of bounce up against one another. So the interesting thing about workers' comp is, if you think about it, we've been focused on musculoskeletal skeletal injuries for like the last hundred years, right? It's been an MSK business. Yeah, there's some occupational disease stuff, but that usually gets bucketed off in you know, like Hanford nuclear reactor issues or asbestosis, silicosis, et cetera. So, and if you think about musculoskeletal, you know, we humans have had pretty much the same musculoskeletal composition for the last 600,000 years, uh, probably going even even further back that. So we kind of know that stuff really well. So along comes COVID, which we don't know anything about, and it's an occupational disease. And there's all these laws that may or may not or sort of kind of maybe affect it. So an industry that was really sort of repetitive and transactional and uh, just did the same thing over and over and over again, not particularly well, but just did it over and over again, all of a sudden had to figure out how to deal with an occupational disease, plus the work from home thing, plus the economy changing, plus a bunch of other stuff happening. So what I was really impressed with was the, the comp industry sort of pretty quickly 
figured out how to handle this and what to do about it, et cetera. And what was interesting was the research organizations kind of sort of panicked about this and said, oh my God, the sky's falling. It's going to be $50 billion worth of claims. We're all going to go bankrupt. It's like, And the scary thing about that, and this is sort of what the limit of workers' comp is, is that that was totally and completely wrong and a total misjudgment of what was what's going on in the workers' comp space. And the issue there is that people in workers' comp, with a few and a very few exceptions, don't know anything about medical care, the delivery thereof, what's happening in the medical delivery system, all those exogenous factors that really affect workers' comp. So we're very much an industry that does a lot of navel-gazing. And you know we think we're big and we think we're important, but realistically, workers' comp is 1% of U.S. medical spend. And realistically, and this is the limitations, A, we've limited because we think of it as insurance and not what it really is, which is helping disabled employees or injured employees get back to work as quickly as possible and keeping that cost as low as possible for taxpayers and employers. Instead, we focus on all this extraneous stuff. And we really, if we understood the medical delivery system, I think we'd do a lot better job of dealing with our, with our injured workers, et cetera. The other thing that was, uh, it sort of argues against that is workers' comp is not important to most employers. You know, it's it, the cost on a per dollar of payroll keeps shrinking, 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 it gets smaller and smaller. Uh, you know, any CFO of any organization or, you know, governmental entity, what have you, workers' comp is like number 26 on their list of priorities because it's cheap, claims are going down, costs are under control, et cetera. Doesn't mean it's still not an issue for those of us who are focused in the space, but without those large employers really driving uh, change and driving innovation, it's difficult to make what I think are needed changes happen in the business. I think that's a that's the real limit. If those changes are so important, are the catalysts actually moving things along, or do you, do you see these uh, the blockers that are still in place? What does that look like in your opinion? So, and being sort of the old guy in the conversation, one of the old guys in the industry, I, I would say I had just have not seen much incentive um, or motivation for or uh, intent to make significant changes in the business. There's been incremental changes, but we're still buying healthcare the way we did 25 years ago. How cheap can we buy it and how little can we buy? If there's no quality assessment, there's there's none of that stuff. From a technology perspective, I, th I think one of the challenges is as workers' comp premiums continue to drop, and I do believe they will, there's very little incentive for carriers to innovate when it comes to technology because in four years, they're going to have 10% fewer claims than they do today. Yeah, how do you put together a business case justifying a technology investment? On the other hand, uh, where you're seeing much more innovation and much more uh, awareness of the opportunity is really in the TPA space. Because these carriers who are sort of understand that the world is shrinking, they're shifting business over to TPAs and that's the biggest growth area for TPAs now is taking over business from, from carriers. So I think that's where the innovation is occurring. The challenge for the large self-insured employer and certainly for the carrier is how do you make sure that that TPA is doing what it needs to do? So I think the carriers are going to be able, and large self-insured employers to a lesser extent, are going to be able to drive change in the TPA market where I think a lot of this innovation is going to occur because the, the carriers don't have to pay for it themselves. They can just tell one TPA, you need to do this. And if they don't, I'll just give my business the other TPA. And that's a real good way to force innovation is scare the crap out of people.
So I think that's where we're going to see innovation in technology and delivery systems, et cetera, is, is really focused in that space. Not to say that there's not going to be some changes in the carrier world, but I would characterize 99% of the stuff that happens in the carrier world as incremental change, not as innovation by any sense of the word. Does that make sense, Connor? And it seems almost, and, and correct me if I'm wrong or I get your opinion, but it's a race to the bottom. And that race to the bottom is shifting where that value stream lies. And as you said, the TPAs are now either innovating or they're not. And uh, it's a really interesting change. Uh, and it, I guess, where did you see kind of that shift? Do you think it's more along the lines of like the pre-COVID, COVID, or is it just literally the tech innovation and some of the you know changes in the fee structures and schedules? So great question. I, and I think you characterize it correctly when you talk about a race to the bottom. You know, one of the challenges in comp is it's a pretty generic benefit and it's a generic medical management process. You know, everybody says that, oh, we can deliver two to three percent lower medical expenses. And it's all crap because they really aren't doing anything fundamentally different. They're all using the same network, the same three bill review vendors, the same this, the same that, the same everything. And they just say that they do it a little bit better. You know, realist, I, I'm also on the board of a Medicaid, Medicare, dual health plan. You know, we spent $2 billion a year on healthcare, and it, our margins are 1%. If we don't watch every fraction of every penny, we're in deep trouble. And workers' comp, that's not so. In workers' comp, it's, it's a mandated um, insurance coverage, so people have to have it. And if there's a little bit of inflation year over year, that's good, because that's the only way your top line is going to grow. So what's happened with this race to the bottom is we need to squeeze as much cost out of what we do, and then we need to come up with creative ways to make our customers pay for that. So what's happened is they've tried to switch technology investments from unallocated loss adjustment to allocated loss adjustment. Then they've tried to shift as much allocated ALA stuff into medical so they can dump it all in the claim and then charge the payer and then they look good. So it's, but ultimately the race to the bottom comes from an inability to differentiate by payers. And if you can't say mine is better and here's how I fix your problem and that's worth more, you have to say I can do it cheaper. And there's just no differentiation among payers, very little among TPAs. So what happens is it's just I can do it cheaper than the next person. Then what happens is you have TPAs, one of which is my least favorite TPA, will, will remain nameless is really good at saying, I'm going to do it really cheap. And then they come back and they nickel and dime and quarter you on everything. Oh, you wanted us to reprice the fee schedule? That's an additional $2 per bill. Oh, you wanted us to connect with electronically? That's five cents, whatever. So, you know, shame on the payers and self-insured employers for not saying, we need an all-in, all-encompassing price. Instead, they allow themselves to be nickel and dime. But then the buyer then can go up to their boss and say, hey, I got it on a per bill basis for three bucks, or I got claim administration for a lost time claim at $1,100, ignoring the fact that they're paying all these other fees on top of that, that is, oh, that's just variable costs. That's just, you know, you didn't worry about them. So I think the race to the bottom is really driven by the buyer not being smart, quite frankly, about managing their money on a holistic basis. I've had way too many conversations with people who said, but we're getting such a good deal. I said, yeah, and they're stealing money from you out of all your their pockets. So no, you're not. It's an interesting uh, paradigm, isn't it? It's, you know, you're racing to the bottom, getting the cheapest outcome, but where's the quality? Where's the real value? And I, I think it goes back and, you know, I hold dear to this in my heart is how do we help the individual? 
that individual going through the claims process is, is unfortunately the one that, that either uh, gets the benefits or they have a terrible experience. So, you know, it's, it, it is really odd how that uh, the value isn't at the focus. It's about pennies, not even dollars. Uh, it's a really, really weird industry in that sense. So do you, do you see a shift uh, in the future of this if, uh, if the TPAs can be forced to innovate or do you think it's going to be status quo uh, as for like the last decade or two? Well, I think the TPAs are going to be forced to do more improvements in processes, and hopefully they're focused on outcomes. But in order to do that, the buyers are going to have to say, I don't care about medical savings, quote unquote. That's just nonsense to start with. It's total BS. I want to know what's your medical cost per lost time claim on an annual basis and just bake everything into that. I want to know what your medical spend is, and I want to know what you're doing to impact that. That gets rid of the frequency issue and it gets rid of all that medical savings nonsense and just focuses on what your medical cost is. Then you want to, to a certain extent, depends on how many claims you have, what type, make sure it's the the representative claim population and it pretty much looks the same. But I think buyers can force TPAs or other payers to think about, okay, what do we need to do to address that, that medical? And then of course you have to function, you have to factor in functionality, return to work, et cetera, because you can squeeze the heck out of medical costs, but if you're not delivering the quality. So, so I think there's, you know, the first thing that TPAs are going to do is, you know, how can we cut down medical expenses as much as possible? Then they're quickly going to realize it. Well, wait a minute. If we do that too much, we're paying too much attention to that. We may impact return to work or disability in a negative way. That's going to screw us too. So how do we, how do we manage these things? So you got to look at indemnity costs per claim and you got to look at medical costs per claim. Fairly simple metrics, relatively easy to, to measure, not perfect, but that sort of starts people thinking in a different way as opposed to this whole percentage of saving stuff. And again, because carriers are really fundam- carriers are fundamentally interested in how much is, you know, what's my loss ratio going to be over time, you, the TPA, are going to drive it. And because they don't have to then ask for the money to, to, to make the IT improvements, it's easier to force change on somebody else than it is to try to make it in your own organization. Yeah, push it downstream, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's sort of like buying a car, right? So I just bought an electric pickup truck and it's great. I love it and everything else. You know, trying to get Chevy or anybody else to make an electric pickup truck, it's like you might as well shoot yourself in the head. It's just not going to happen. Somebody else starts making one. All of a sudden Ford says, oh crap, we got to make an electric pickup truck. So make an electric pickup truck. So that's sort of when there's market demand, it changes behavior. Unless there's market demand, then no behavioral change will occur. So I think what we're seeing now with the shift more towards TPAs doing more claim management, which I'm not really, let's say claims handling. Um, I think it puts the buyers in a better position because you can play them off one against another. Yeah. It's, it's all about leverage. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that's, uh, it's a really interesting trend as, as that moves along. And I, we've seen that as well. TPAs are doubling down and investing heavily in technology, trying to maximize that outcome as well. Not only can you drive the cost down, but can you de- deliver a better uh, service in general? But another interesting component that we've seen too is offshoring. It's growing at a tremendous rate. And uh, I think that's where a lot of this this cost cutting and race to the bottom is actually being pushed further. What are your thoughts on on offshoring and, and, and some of the BPOs or CPOs and uh, their activity within the space? You know, I think that offshoring, et cetera, is you know, it's been happening in document management, for example, forever. You know, Liberty Mutual was using people in Ghana to process stuff, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. And big business grew up around that. I, it, the challenge I see with offshoring, and I have some personal experience with this with a, with a client, is that 
you have to be really careful that you don't offshore your customer experience. Because when you do, the person who is handling it in an offshore or even onshore, you know, outsource, just to say outsource, is um, are, do they care about your customer experience or are they being measured on, say, accounts receivable you know, days or accounts receivable collections or you know, call to answer time or other stuff that's not meaningful? So what I found in this situation was that the offshore, they, they offshored collections and they were pretty good at that. But what they found out of the process is they pissed off every adjuster they talked to, which really hurt the business a lot because they just stopped referring business to this client. So it's like, wait a minute, we've offshored that. So we were successful. We were successful and we screwed ourselves in the process. So that whole, what concerns about the offshoring is how you handle the customer experience piece of it. Is this, is the customer, are we making the customer happier? Are we doing more of what they need? Are we solving their pain in a holistic way? Or is there anything, and is there anything we're doing when we offshore that is actually potentially causing friction? And we need to be really, really aware of that. So that's why you have to look at this in a holistic perspective. And not just look at it like, oh, we got to save money in AR, or we got to do a better job at our call center. We got to do this, we got to do that. No, it's how are we going to affect the customer experience and make it better? At least status quo, ideally better. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And 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 I'd like to elaborate on that a bit because I think it is really important. That's that's kind of what I alluded to uh, earlier. Is like, what's the value? What's the quality? Um, when you're just at a race to the bottom, you, something's got to give. And what are some of the things that you would see that would add that to the industry right now that's lacking? And I think that's going to be the trade-off. How do we get value with good pricing? And if we can find that happy medium or at least work towards it, that's a better process. It's a better outcome for everyone. Um, but I'd just be interested to, to hear more on, on where you see that quality and where does that lie? So when you say quality, is that sort of a broad question, broadly defined? Yeah, well, we can even use just the the, the, the experience, right? It's uh, just like in software, you know, your UI, you, your UX is so important on that overall use case and, and how people want to use a product just as a service, like that quality or that, that experience is so important as well. Like, where do you see that lacking right now in the industry? So to get back to something you mentioned earlier is, you know, the reality is, the industry has two customers. It's the injured worker and their nuclear family, surrounding family, and the employers and taxpayers who pay in the premiums. And we have to think about everything we do in the context of how do we deliver better for that injured worker so that they get the care they need, not the care they don't need, and that they get back to work as quickly as possible, or if they're not able to, that we achieve claim resolution as quickly as possible, put them in the highest functioning capacity we can, and then settle the claim in places where you can do that. On the employer and taxpayer side, it's how do we, A, prevent disability? Because if we prevent it, then they don't need to worry so much about, I need to hire somebody else, and also don't need to incur the cost of that. But then once that happens, how do we manage it in the most cost-effective way that's fiduciary, resp fiduciarily responsible? So, you know, some folks think that that's sort of that that's opposite, like you squeeze costs down to the employer benefits. Well, not really, because if you squeeze costs down, you have an upset employee who's now litigating a claim that's going to go on much longer. You've just not helped yourself at all. So from a quality perspective, it's, and this is where I think the industry is just completely blind, it's about the quality of care that is actually delivered. And does that, is that care, does that facilitate return to functionality? 
there is only one carrier that I'm aware of that is doing any evaluation of the quality of, for example, um, hospital outpatient uh, surgical facilities and ambulatory surgical centers and factoring that into trying to get people to those right things. All the rest of them are just like, oh, it's in our network. That's fine. It's like there are some really crappy hospital outpatient surgical facilities and some great ones. And if you're just dealing with an audience in the network, we get a discount. That's okay. Gosh, no surprise. Somebody gets an infection. Somebody has an adverse reaction. Somebody has to be admitted to the ER. All that stuff happens, whatever. So you need to look at that from a quality perspective. And there's all kinds of different ways to do that, looking at different quality metrics tied to facility outcomes and infections and clinical results, et cetera. And once you deliver that quality, the cost generally speaking, there's a bit of a negative correlation between facility cost and outcomes, a bit of a, it's not all that valid. Some facilities are very expensive and very good, not very many. Uh, Some are very expensive and really bad. There's a lot of those. But generally speaking, the ones that are higher quality in our research has found that those are actually a little bit less expensive typically. So if you find those, you're delivering better quality, probably at a slightly lower cost, even though you don't really care too much about that. Ultimately, what that does is it drives the it drives better results for the employer. They're going to get back to work faster. Their costs are going to be lower. Their mods going to go down over time. So when I think about quality, it comes down to the medical care that's delivered to that injured workers at the right care at the right time at the right price. And that's why I think we really need to focus on the quality of medical care overall. That's what we need to do. And that's the quality also extends to the experience that that injured worker has with the payer. Are they, do they feel that the payer is concerned about them, cares about them, is trying to do the right thing for them? Are they um, dealt with in a way such that they're, they feel like they're a patient, not a claimant? Do they feel like this entity is doing the best they can for them and not just penny pinching? Are they treating them like they want to be treated? And I think in, I think we're getting better at that. But that customer experience, I don't know really of anybody who's doing a good job of measuring the injured workers' responses to that in a holistic way. And I think that's really important. And, and that could be the future. Like that, that could be the mover, the the game, the game shattering thing that uh, you know propels industry to the next level. And it's really at the the end state. It's the being patient centric, right? It's if you can if you can solve that it all lies around that, that individual and getting them back working, uh, the autonomy, getting them out of that process, uh, which is, uh, if you've ever gone through it, it's, it's something else. So I agree with you on that one, Joe, I know we're coming up to time. Um, I really, really appreciate your feedback. And I think we, uh, just off of the, uh, the paint, the end state there with, uh, being patient centric, that could be a whole new podcast right there. So, uh, I'll, uh, I'll do a little digging and maybe we can circle back. Okay. Much appreciate the time, Connor. Thanks for looking me up. Thanks for listening to this episode of Talking Wisely. I'm Connor Atchison, your host. Find out more about WiseDocs and the Talking Wisely podcast on our website, wisedocs.ai. Thank you.